0: you're becoming simply a technician there's no feeling there's no drama there's no passion we're only interested in one thing can you tell a story bot can you make us laugh can you make us cry can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song it's about time in a film nothing happened what a brave choice a director made what a what a pioneer this guy is let's do nothing do you know anything about the art of film production well, I like
1: to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This
0: is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft,
1: and work hard.
0: Movies. Mm-hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. this
1: up. Roll down. Roll camera. Speed. Dead okay. okay. water. Action kids. Action
0: kids. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. I'm Joe. My name's Justin. In this episode, we're going to be breaking down Edward Yang's 1986 film, Terrorizers, or The Terrorizer, or The Terrorizers, however you prefer. Just to let everybody know, this discussion will include spoilers for Terrorizers. Justin, how are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you doing? All right. I guess I'll just kind of set us up here a little bit uh, because this was a film that I chose for the podcast. And if this is your first experience with scene by scene, we do rotate the selection of our film between Justin and myself. This episode, I opted for terrorizers, the terrorizers or the terrorizer. (laughs) I think before we go too far, Justin, how do we want to refer to this? Because depending on what you look at or how you locate the film,
1: there's different options. Let me just do a little research. I'm just going to say terrorizers. And you already, (laughs) terrorizers, you already disagree with me. I'm going to refer to it as the terrorizer. I think the
0: more we discuss the film, maybe I can shed some light on why I'm referring to it in a singular sense uh, because there is method to my madness on this.
1: Is it because of the actual content of the film? Because
0: I, I think that it becomes more focused as the film goes on who the title may be referring to. But admittedly, that can be open to interpretation based off of what you take away from the film. I don't think we're there yet, and I think that's something that we'll, we'll eventually get to. I, I want to touch a little bit on why I selected The Terrorizer as the subject matter for this episode. Uh, selfishly, I will say that Edward Yang is one of those filmmakers who has a very, I'll say arguably, small filmography and maybe some people would argue that his contribution to cinema is is equally as small. However, I don't think that's an accurate statement at all. Yang was one of the Founders of the new Taiwanese cinema. At a point in time when there wasn't a focus on the art, art as a whole uh, within Taiwan and the culture of the Taiwanese, Yang was really one of the figureheads and one of the people that really helped pave the way for. Kind of almost a a film revolution. Clearly, he's not alone in that. And we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. But I would say that Yang deserves so much credit for the films and what film is today, as far as that culture goes. Now, on the flip side of it, we talked about it in our introduction episode. Edward Yang, to me, is a tremendous inspiration for film. He's also a director that. I feel like I have a number of blind spots, too. This actually only being the fourth Yang film that I've watched, I think the most popular ones are also the most accessible ones with Yi Yi, A Brighter Summer Day, and maybe to a lesser extent, Taipei Story. But I will say unequivocally, in my opinion, Yi Yi is a perfect film. I think that it's one of those films that you don't need to see many times to just know that you're watching and experiencing something special. And I wanted to immerse myself more with Yang. And part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is to gain some of that exposure, fill in some of those blind spots. And that's, I know it's a very long answer of why I chose this film, and especially given that, well, you know, there's, there's other films, you know, maybe one could argue that we should have gone that day on the beach because that was his first major feature film. From the research and the digging I, I had done, The Terrorizer is one of those films that is accredited as one of his best pieces of work after Yee Yee and A Brighter Summer Day. I don't know that I'll agree with that per se. And we'll probably find the answer to that as we discuss this. But Justin, what was kind of your experience
1: with Yang and, that f- and the film? I have no real experience with this particular film. I'm obviously aware that it was an uh, Edward Yang film. It's it's a weird situation. It's kind of a blind spot for me because I've only seen probably his three most popular films being Yi Yi, a Brighter Summer Day, and Taipei Story. With someone who does have a relatively small filmography, there's quite a few films there that I I, I really have no knowledge of, which is really exciting, actually, because you expressed your sort of love for Yang, and, and I will agree with you. I think Yang is in a handful of the great filmmakers. I think he is one of the greatest filmmakers ever. Going back to kind of what you said and how there's this feeling that maybe his contribution to the progression of film is small. I would say that's not true, but it's interesting that he is sort of underrated or unknown. And I think the Taiwanese new wave or new Taiwan cinema movement, however you refer to it, is just a group of films that are relatively unknown or don't get the respect they deserve. Just as an example, I'm going to bring up something here. I have a book called The Movie Book, Big Ideas Simply Explained. Now, I I would not say this book is a, a The authority on important film is basically just a coffee table book for people who may be interested in the complete history of film up to whatever point this book was published. But I bring this up because there's no mention of Taiwanese film, no mention of Yang, you know, no mention of Taiming Liang, no mention of Ho Shen. You know, they mention Ang Lee, whose early films were... Taiwan, U.S. co-productions, but they mention him in the context of like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or something, which is obviously not a, would not be considered a Taiwanese film. They kind of gloss over the fact that he is from Taiwan. And, And this is significant because this is a book that does talk about the German New Wave or Dogma 95, really kind of relatively obscure film movements. But somehow this, this movement, one that I would argue is has produced some of the great films, is completely ignored. I think there is a strong contribution from these filmmakers to what films are today. I deeply respect Yang and I love his films. And like I was saying, it's kind of exciting to think that there's all these films yet to discover from a filmmaker I consider one of the best. And if I could just jump in on that, too, once we get into
0: our breakdown of The Terrorizer, I think one of my big takeaways was after it was over, how much I wanted to revisit it. And I feel like, you know, you're talking about Really, the discovery of Yang or expanding on what we experienced when watching a Yang film, his more accessible films with Brighter Summer Day and Yi Yi; those are sitting on my shelf. And I really want to go back and re-experience them because I know that I'm going to get something new out of it. And it probably is going to be a different experience. And I, I felt the same way walking away from The Terrorizer.
1: Yeah, I do think his films somehow get better and better every time I watch them. And this is one that I feel like I think we both are probably going to bring up that it doesn't live up to the greatness of Yee Yee as an example. But I do want to rewatch this already. And I imagine when I do that I'm going to like it more and I'm going to find more in it. And this will come back later when you start talking about the story, but I actually think the running time on this film is actually to its detriment. I think this film should be longer. I I think it's just worth noting that when people think of Yang, they think of long movies. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why he's a little tougher to, to get into and a little bit, you know, it's just more of a struggle. Just kind of throwing this out there. So, that day on the beach... Um, I'm seeing two hours and 46 minutes. Brighter summer day, three hours and 57 minutes. And Yee is two hours and 53 minutes. So we're, I mean, we're talking about two three-hour movies and one four-hour movie. If we round up, not everybody has time for a four-hour movie. I do wonder if that keeps people away a little bit. And we'll get into this, but I would argue if anybody has not watched any of his films because of the length, please don't let that stop you because... They're amazing films, and I think they use their length successfully. And kind of wish Terrorizers was a little bit longer. We'll get into that. Anything else you want to say before we get started, Joe?
0: Just to kind of let everybody know, I am going to read a few things out of contemporary film director's Edward Yang. In this book, it talks about W.H. Auden's suggested criteria recognizing a major poet. And this is like very early on within the first page. Item number one is a large body of work. The book basically disqualifies Yang as a major poet because of the number of films that he's done. And the book reads, Although a founding father of the Taiwanese new wave, which erupted with monsoon-like ferocity against complacent conventional native filmmaking, at the beginning of the 1980s, Yang has not had the most prolific of careers. He has produced only seven films of feature length since 1983. However, all of his features run from a minimum of two hours to as much as four hours, which would make Yang's screen time the equivalent of one and a half times that of most other directors. I felt like that's an important item to share because we kind of take for granted the number of films a director puts out. However, I can't think of a filmmaker that has had, and again, admittedly, there could be four films from Yang that I absolutely hate and despise. I don't foresee that happening. But from where I stand now, I can't think of a filmmaker who has put out as much quality as Yang has. And you're absolutely right. The length of his films, I think that those are a turnoff for people, but I don't think they should be because, you know, and again, I know we're not talking about Yi but I don't think I had as personal of an experience with any film as I felt when I watched Yi.
1: He has a style, and this is very common within the Taiwanese New Wave as well, all the filmmakers, is that they do sort of create this distance between the viewer and the subjects, particularly with the camera. And sometimes, you know, people feel like that can create this disconnect or you're, you don't become emotionally invested the same way as a film that's using close-ups as an example. And that's present in this film being terrorizers. It's also present in Yi Yi. But somehow Yi Yi, despite that, is a film that like just brings up all of these emotions in me. It's worth also noting, he died at age 60. You know, it's sort of sad you know, Yi Yi being his final film, I think is his masterpiece. It's we can only imagine, you know, what he would he would have gone on to make if he had a little bit more time.
0: There is something innately sad about Yang's story as it is. As I get older, and as a filmmaker who's aging, I think about Yang, from the perspective of he didn't really get started and really focus on filmmaking until later in his life. Either here's a, a man who wanted to be the good Taiwanese son. He there wasn't a place for artists. The book I'm reading discusses his his love for like Japanese manga and drawing and and cartooning basically, and how he basically set that aside to pursue a more. And I'm going to use air quotes on this. But a more practical lifestyle, getting into uh, working in computers, and when he went back to Taiwan, he was he had a, from the sounds of it a very a very solid job working at uh, the University of Washington. To I guess have the braveness and the boldness to lead what I think is fair to say a revolution later in life, and not really giving up on that love or passion, I think, to me, that's incredibly inspiring.
1: So, yeah, Yang went to university in the U.S. and did briefly attend USC film program as well. For my research, he only lasted one semester. But there's a quote. I realized I didn't have any talent at all. I didn't have what it takes to get into the film business, so I dropped out. I recognized that I better not dream this dream because I didn't have what it takes. I can only imagine the combination of this obligation to get into, you know, to be a doctor or an engineer or a scientist or whatever, and then also, you know, kind of go for it and realize I don't have what it takes in terms of what they're teaching at school. I imagine that's like... That just added to that pain. The film I see is Herzog's Aguirre Wrath of God as the thing that kind of sparked that interest again, realizing that he could learn through other ways, not through necessarily film school. So he realized that, you know, film can be so much more than whatever they were teaching at USC at the time. So I will
0: say I have not seen this uh, film from Herzog. And upon learning and discovering this in the material I was when when I was researching Yang I would say that it instantly made me want to watch it because here's a film that was instrumental in helping direct one of the best filmmakers in my opinion well I think that we should talk about the terrorizer and and the story behind it
1: 你是谁他不在你哪位 我们, 那老爷信任您了
0: going to pull one more quote, if I may, because I think it's important to know and understand this before we we talk about what uh, the terrorizer is and we break the film down. This again comes from contemporary film directors, the Edward Yang edition. I'm referencing page 45. In 2001, Yang said, I had a lot of things in my head for 15, 20 years, which suddenly crystallized in that movie, which was actually one of the fastest I've ever made. This is in regards to the terrorizer. The trigger came when someone introduced me to a Eurasian girl who appears in the film and seemed to have potential as an actress. When I started to talk to her, I realized she had all kinds of problems with her mother who used to lock her up at home. She told me that when she was imprisoned like that, she would avenge herself by making prank phone calls. Did you get any fun out of that? I asked her. Then she said, yeah, well, one time I did get worried. I rang a number out of the blue. And when a housewife answered the phone, I said, I'm your husband's mistress. I want to talk to you. The line went dead. I was quite shocked and thought, that's a time bomb. You could kill people by casually doing that. So then the story came quickly. Everything fell together. The narrative is complicated because it shows a range of people who don't have anything to do with each other. And then something so accidental, so arbitrary, as a random phone call brings severe tragedy to every one of them. I wanted to read that because that describes this film better than anything I could ever try to express or summarize for the audience.
1: Not only is that a great story and while you see that exactly happen in the film, with other elements added. But it goes to, you know, something else that I think you'll see kind of common with really talented filmmakers is they are pulling from reality. And in this case, I mean, he's essentially casting this woman to play herself and to reenact things that she's lived through. One thing I want to
0: highlight, because I feel like it's an incredibly important message, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to read that passage from the book, is inspiration for film and for filmmakers comes from places I don't think that we ever expect. And for Yang to find something here and to basically craft a story— Surrounding it, I think it speaks to one his sensibilities, but just the fact that as an artist, what may be appealing and interesting to some people may not be interesting to others. But if you're a good enough artist, you can take that. That thing that you find interesting and you can make it your own. You can craft something out of it and and it can become a very powerful piece of art. Well said. What more would you add regarding the story, Justin? Or what what else would you elaborate on? Because I know that there's there are key elements that are missing from the passage.
1: I think it may be worth noting that similar to kind of how we I kind of described Mulholland Drive last episode. It has a very similar sort of structure focuses on a group of characters focuses on each of them in this sort of episodic manner and so you'll you know you'll focus on one character for a scene or two and then you'll switch to a new character and then as the film progresses or in this case kind of right away but it kind of evolves over time you learn that these characters are connected in some way so in terms of the story i think it's worth noting that we have we have a photographer his girlfriend we have a the woman that that passage describes. She is referred to as Whitechick and her boyfriend. Um, we have a writer and her husband, who's like this lab technician. There's a cop who's kind of investigating the crimes that are happening in the city, but also happens to be a friend of the lab technician. And we have like an editor, I, I don't know, ex- ex-lover maybe even of the writer as well who comes back. And so there's all these sort of stories and they're, they're sort of connected in different ways. But I think at a certain point, you kind of realize that the main folk, at least for me, maybe you'll feel a little bit differently. At a certain point, you kind of realize that the relationship between the writer and the lab technician is kind of at the center and the other characters are kind of in a way there just to support that. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that everything that I feel happens in the story is spinning around those two. And, and I would take it a step further because I, I don't feel like she has the most screen time out of anybody. But I do feel like the writer novelist is the main character of this story, even though there's all these other stories happening around her and the focus of the film shifts periodically, I do feel like she more so, I would argue, than the husband, the lab technician, she is at the center of everything that's happening.
1: This sort of leads to the thing I had said earlier, that I feel like the length of this film, which is actually under two hours, actually feels like a bit of a negative, because I feel like there could have been more with other characters and that would have actually enhanced the story. I do feel like there's certain characters that feel like they're there to facilitate some sort of plot device at times, or there's just characters like the photographer's girlfriend. There's could be a lot of really interesting stuff with her, but he leaves her early in the film, and then she kind of disappears. So you disagree with that?
0: I would actually argue that she doesn't necessarily disappear. I think she is easily written off because it was a suicide attempt because we do see her again in a sequence being taken in in an
1: ambulance. We don't get her again until the photographer, her boyfriend comes back. And so she's only kind of there in relation to him. She's only part of the story because of him. And I feel like that's a little sad because I feel like, you know, certainly there's some dramatic stuff going on there that could have been explored and could add another element to some of the themes present in the film. And I think there's a lot of them. That's just one example. But that's one that I I just would have liked to have seen more from.
0: I would kind of echo that sentiment about the lab technician's friend So at one point within the film, this lab technician is trying to get a promotion or advance his career, and he spreads a rumor to his boss about a friend of his. Later on, we see an interaction between the lab technician and that friend, and the friend is questioning what happened, who spread this about him, all while being confronted with the person who actually did it. It's shortly thereafter we we never see that character again. And there were moments where I found myself wondering, hey, I, I wonder what's going on with that friend. This is not going to be the most favorable comparisons. But as I was watching The Terrorizer, I found myself thinking about movies like Babel and Crash from, you know, an American audience perspective, because there's a degree of overlap in how the films are constructed. There were moments where I'm like, I I would have liked that scene or those two scenes to kind of check in with some of these other side characters.
1: Yeah, I mean, Babel and Crash are good comparisons for this sort of structure. And also in Babel and Crash... As two examples, the characters are kind of not characters, they're stand-ins for something. They're representative of some societal issue. You know, in Crash, obviously, the, the easiest example is, you know, this character isn't really a character. They're just there to represent racism or intolerance or whatever. And so, it's all just about feeding the theme of the movie and the message of the movie. Oh, Absolutely. This is not about Crash, but that's why I don't like Crash, is I think movies that feature characters, nuanced, interesting, you know, flawed, are always going to work better and get their message across better. I would say that part of that is present in Terrorizers, and we'll get to this a little bit, but I think Terrorizers does it much better. You really hit on the
0: point that I I wanted to make, though, is while in Crash, you do see those things and you do see those, again, I'm going to use air quotes for a second time, those characters, you, you get that. And I just found myself kind of longing and wanting because everybody in this film, they all felt like people. Okay, I understand them. And that's why I wanted more and I I wanted to spend some time with the photographer's girlfriend, the friend who was quitting the lab. There's a lot of instances like that.
1: That's why I say, like, I wish there was more of those characters because despite the fact that there is an element of, like, they're serving this greater purpose, they do still feel like characters. So although we get very little of them, I wanted more of them. The same cannot be said for Crash as an example. If we don't go back to one character, I don't necessarily care because I'm not invested in that character's journey. This I am totally invested and that's why it feels like the movie would have been sort of elevated if there was just a little bit more time for all these other characters. Agreed. Let's see if you agree with me on this one. The friend of the lab technician who is the cop, I feel like his purpose is to service the end of the film. Certainly, crime is part of this story. And I do want to hint on, you know, sort of what's going on in Taiwan at the time and and for a long time, a long history of this kind of stuff. But ultimately, it feels like he's there so the friend can take the gun and we can get our, you know, his him lashing out and getting what he sees as revenge for all these things that have gone wrong. That is a character that we don't get a lot of as well. You add on top of that, that it feels like he's kind of used for this one purpose. It feels contrived.
0: Uh, Yeah. So I'm, I am going to agree with you because as the ending was playing out and I hate to say this, but I, I almost felt a twinge of disappointment. Because what happens in the end, I felt like the film was better than what happens to a degree. That's not to discredit the terrorizer or Yang or the, the film as a whole. Because I'll, I'll say, I, I really, really liked this film a lot. But I will say the cop felt like a plot device. It felt like a way to get to the ending, as you said, I felt like something was taken away from from the film because of the way it ends.
1: Do you want to talk about the ending now?
0: Yeah, I guess we can just kind of talk through.
1: Maybe we'll work backwards a little bit. I think the ending is actually pretty interesting, but I can't say I love it. And certainly it's interesting, given our discussion with Mulholland Drive, that there is another chance for us to discuss whether a scene is a dream, what the dream means, and whose perspective is it from? Do you have any thoughts about that?
0: Well, actually, I think it raises an interesting question because I couldn't help but question if what we were experiencing and watching wasn't necessarily something that was truly playing out as a whole, but rather the writer's story and novel being put on display. And the end of the film which is her waking up and vomiting, that was communicating to the audience that everything that you had just experienced was her story and the finished product of
1: her novel. I tend to believe it's actually a dream. Okay, so let's break down what actually happened. So the lab technician, his wife leaves him. He also believes that he's going to get a promotion at work, but he does not. Someone else gets it. He goes over to his friend, the cop's house. He tells the cop that he actually got the promotion and that he's happy and so what that his wife left him. He doesn't need her. He's got the job. And ultimately, you know, that's what's most important to a man is, you know, successful career or whatever. And then, you know, they're drinking, they're celebrating, they pass out. Uh, The lab technician, he wakes up. He takes the gun from the cop's holster, which is, you know, hanging on a door. And we see the sequence in which he shoots the director who gave the promotion to someone else. He shoots his wife's boyfriend, who is like the editor. And I guess he shoots the white chick. And then it sort of, it's, it stops, it snaps, and we're back to the cop sleeping. He kind of wakes up, and then we get the wife waking up. They both wake up at the same time. If you're going to strictly interpret it based on the film language, they're implying that this was a dream from, at least from the cop's perspective, but maybe from the wife's perspective as well. Now, I don't believe it's a dream just because the film language is telling me that. I think Edward Yang is above, and we'll get into it a little bit, but I think he plays with expectations. So there is a little bit of like fooling the audience and purposely not giving the audience what they expect. But I I think it's a dream. And for me, I think it's a dream from both of their perspectives. They had the same dream. This goes down to the state of... Taiwan. This identity crisis that everyone is sort of experiencing because of like these this long history of, you know, control from the Japanese and then from mainland China. And it creates this whole situation of they don't know their national identity and their, therefore their personal identity. And although each person sort of has this different personal experience, they all have this shared experience of being Taiwanese. This uncertainty of who you are, w- your place in the world, And so for me, it's like, it's a dream that they both shared this like nightmare of what could have happened, the possibility of what happened. If I could kind of go
0: back to the, uh, the lab technicians kind of, I want to say like, it's basically his last lines of the film and he states, my hard work was appreciated for a man. A successful career is the most important thing. The rest is meaningless. There's a lot to unpack just within that, because for one, the rest, clearly he's talking about love, his wife, you know, the honor and the respect. But then by acknowledging that, and the realization that he didn't even get this promotion, he is rendering himself meaningless, even with his own words. And I thought that was just, I thought that was just a very moving moment. And I don't know that I felt more sad at any point over the duration of The Terrorizer, except for that moment. I will also say that I think it, it speaks to the mentality of the culture at the time. I think at the core of The Terrorizer, you're wrestling with what Yang has experienced and what the culture has experienced, because you're, you're looking at art as as a fantasy it's a struggle and it's it's conflicting with the expectations and what somebody should be doing and you see that with the disconnect between the the lab technician husband and the writer wife in the end really what's what's trying to be conveyed is that sometimes you you need to remove kill That mindset of the practical and the this is what's expected of me, and focus on the art and the things that may not society may not deem practical.
1: Whether he believes it or not, the things he said come from a very traditional perspective. A large part of this film is about the like the old versus the new, or like you know, the East versus the West, the East being these traditional Chinese values and. Taiwan becoming more influenced by the West and trying to find its own identity within that, that's part of her character and a part of her journey as well. She, she has a job. She's trying to be a writer. It comes down to the situation in which she can't write because she writes from her own experiences, but her role in this society is to like just stay home. Well, you have no experiences if you just are at home all the time. She wants to be a writer, but she can't write because she's being forced into this role that she no longer wants or no longer willing to accept. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I would agree with that. There's almost like these themes of the artist and art and the moral responsibility of the artist in this film in subtle ways.
0: So if I could just kind of jump in and... Maybe this is just one of those things that I need to consider upon the rewatch, because admittedly, going into The Terrorizer, I didn't really have an understanding of what to expect. I did go in pretty blind. But did we just experience Edward Yang kind of exposing himself and his mentality in his earlier years? Because the film is a lot of wrestling with traditionalism. It's a lab technician or possibly a doctor versus a writer. And even the writer's wrestling with, do I give this up? I guess my question is, was this like our insight into Edward Yang and his mentality and what he struggled with?
1: I, I feel like absolutely. And and the way the writer in this film is writing from experiences. And her experiences being husband-wife relationships, so her book is about the husband and wife, expresses that's all she can write now. It's her only experience. And then she experiences something else, which is facilitated by the prank phone call. And that, you know, inspires her work to diverge in this new direction, which ultimately leads to her success. So just like she's writing from experience, I think we can see Yang taking from his own experiences when he's conceiving this movie. There's the moment where uh white chick is kind of, she went back to the apartment where now the photographer is staying and they have that conversation. And she she says, you know, something like, is it fun to take pictures of other people or is it acceptable to take pictures of other people? Implying that he crossed some sort of line by photographing her and creating this sort of large mosaic mural of her. And then, you know, there's things like, Well, certainly the idea that the writer's story doesn't actually match reality and the photographer gets hung up on this and he's like, I'm the only one who knows that like this didn't happen. She didn't come to that door and meet her husband's mistress. She met me. She's on the news saying that she is writing from this honest place. She's writing about her, her life. And then at the same time, you know, she's ultimately what happens in the film is a lie. And then there's that, you know, discussion he has about like fiction is fiction and reality is reality and they're kind of separate. Now, you know, that kind of thing. He's discussing this with his girlfriend. I feel like there is this theme of like, what is the difference between reality and fiction? And then also what responsibility does the artist have to that? I had written down a moment where
0: even the writer says Novels are novels. Don't take them too seriously. No need to confuse it with reality. And that was a discussion that she was having with the editor who would eventually become the person that she kind of left her husband for, I thought it was a, a tremendous scene where the writer and the editor are having this conversation. And it's implied that there had been a significant amount of time where they hadn't like seen each other or spoken. The editor is commenting about how he kind of saw himself in her work. It's an important through line because a lot of the characters in the film kind of relate and go back to that sentiment of what is fact, what is fiction, what is the truth, what is the reality versus what are the lies that we're telling.
1: You know, I I had also mentioned, you know, I felt like Metropolis was kind of a a daunting film because it was so complex and there was a lot going on and, you know, that had all this history and stuff too, but I feel like there's a lot going on in this film thematically. In terms of what you can take away from the meaning of, of these things. I want to discuss why I think the ending is interesting. But is there anything else in terms of like thematic discussions you want to have first? Because I feel like I'm going to sort of change the subject.
0: No, I, I don't think so. I, I think I really covered the the art. I feel like disconnect is a tremendous uh, theme throughout the the film. I'm going to say no.
1: Okay. What I find interesting about the ending is not necessarily how you interpret the ending, it's not necessarily story, it's sort of the way Yang plays with expectations. The film as a whole, well, it uses ellipsis editing, which I think we'll get into a little bit later, where certain things are cut out. It kind of jumps around, even within a scene. You know, the characters will be in this part of the house, and then we'll cut to something else, and it'll look like this is a new scene. The scene's over. But it's actually the same scene just later on. Um, I have better examples that we can probably get into later, because I think the editing is really interesting in this film. As a result, it's sort of hard to understand what's going on, the meaning of things... And then you get to the scene where he, the lab technician has essentially lost everything and he grabs the gun. That moment, he's giving the impression that he's giving the audience what they expect. It's like for the first time in the film, the audience knows what's going on in the sense that they know what's going to happen next. At this moment, it feels like a a movie. He's got a gun and we know exactly who he's upset with. It's giving this impression that he's going to deliver exactly what you expect. And then when that ends, and that's actually not the case, he's pulling that rug out and it's even more obvious that he's not going to give you what you expect. And then I think the vomiting at the end is just another example of this. She wakes up, you know, she's not feeling well, and then she leans over the bed and she begins to vomit. But we never actually see her vomit. We never get like the completion of that action. It cuts to credits mid retch. <laughs> And it's just another one of these things where like, we know what we're going to get. We know what to expect. He's going to prevent us from getting that satisfaction. Does that make any sense? And if I can just add, I think the film as a whole does that to you. You mentioned that the entire film does this, and and you kind of
0: mentioned the way that it's edited. For me, it almost worked as a detriment because I think there was a lot of subverting reality and I think that that ending just felt out of place where you mentioned it. At no point did I ever feel like, hey, I was, I'm watching a movie as much as I was experiencing something. But in that moment, I did feel like I felt like I was doubting the reality of it. And that's to me why I think I struggled with it. And it didn't completely work for me was because this felt wrong versus everything else. And it felt uncharacteristic of everything else we've we had gotten to that point.
1: You mean just the ending?
0: The revenge sequence that we're treated to, what ultimately becomes the reality of the situation with the suicide and her waking up and vomiting. That was Maybe more of the part that I found interesting and that I I appreciated more. Because even though maybe one would expect it, that doesn't make me think that it's a lesser of an ending. Sometimes the ending that you are expecting is the ending you deserve for a particular reason. I would just say that the revenge sequence just felt very out of place, with everything else that we've been given. there's a level of violence to it that just felt uncharacteristic
1: with the rest of the film. Does it help you that it's not reality or is the fact that the inclusion of it alone feels false?
0: I think this is going to be a bigger discussion and I don't think it's fair for me to say this because Edward Yang is who he was and I'm who I am and there's reason behind that. But I think about that sequence and I just think, man, I would have much rather spent more time with the photographer and his girlfriend or the lab technician friend or even gotten a sense of the director uh, at the hospital or any number of other people.
1: I can't say I love the love that ending either. I feel like I maybe liked it more than you did on a list of the reasons why this film is considered to be really interesting. You know, I've seen it referred to like as a puzzle. I think the main reason for that is sort of the sequence, the revenge sequence, however you interpret that scene seems to be one of those things that stands out. And I think maybe you're either interested in it and fascinated by it and you want to like sort of understand it or you maybe just don't care for it.
0: I do feel like maybe I would benefit from another viewing and maybe my perspective does change on it. I can only go based off of the one watch I've had. I'm lukewarm to it. Anything else that you'd want to touch on regarding the ending?
1: Just real quick. There's the whole thing where he, within the revenge sequence, he goes to, you know, he kills his wife's lover. He goes to the wife and he doesn't shoot the wife. He shoots the mirror. (laughs) Now knowing what happens, the fact that he actually shoots himself, the idea that he is depicted as shooting the mirror seems kind of interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, actually,
1: I'm in agreement with you on this part.
0: I think that once he arrives at that apartment, shooting the lover and then making the conscious decision not to shoot her, but instead shooting the mirror, I thought that was the best sequence of the revenge fantasy uh, sequence. I'd also say when he was in the hotel with White Chick and confronting another person that he was at the root cause of the downfall of his marriage, at least from his perspective, I thought that was a very interesting scene and sequence too, just the way that it was shot. And some would argue nothing really happened in it. I think that was
1: just a great tense moment. You preferred the moments that weren't necessarily depicting violence. Correct.
0: And maybe that's just that because across Yang films, the way that he depicts violence and the way that he shoots violent sequences, it's very different than what we get in that like dream fantasy revenge sequence. Because I think about, so spoilers for A Brighter Summer Day as well. The ending of A Brighter Summer Day, where the girl is stabbed, you don't really see the action as much as you see the reactions. And, you know, it's it's not like this gory, gratuitous thing. I would also say, even in Taipei's story, where the man is killed towards the end, I don't think that it matches the level of depicted violence that we get and the terrorizer so i think maybe to me that's just what it was just the familiarity with ying how he depicts violence and this feeling just so uncharacteristic of him and his style there's something that i i absolutely adored about the heartbreaking elements of the writer wife and the scenes with the lab technician husband because some of that information is provided through conversation with the editor and the person that she's having the affair with. There's something interesting to me, the way that films... I, I really want to choose my words carefully with this. I think that the way that films depict... An affair or an element like that, there's generally like more lies or deception or or things of that nature involved with the way that those are are generally depicted. And I think one of the elements about the writer and her affair that I felt like it was it was effective was how honest to an extent she was in that, basically highlighting the fact that her husband doesn't do these things. And then it's followed up with the scene where she's clearly having feelings and the husband is so disconnected that he just automatically assumes that it's based off of her struggling to write. And I thought that that went a very long way in my mind of just depicting how disconnected these two were from each other.
1: I do really appreciate that scene in which, you know, she's been gone for a couple days and she comes home and, you know, he's like happy to see her and is under the impression, you know, like she only left because she needed some quiet place to write, even though he's gone all day and she theoretically has a quiet place at home to write. It kind of goes on where it's not like she immediately is i'm leaving she tries to kind of just go on with life you know they go into the office and they start cleaning up her office and then when she finally says something that the scene that follows it doesn't break into this heated argument it's like he says his side and i mean this goes to the way it's photographed as well he says his side there's like a lull of silence and then she says her side Then she leaves and he watches her leave. A relationship that's been over for a while, but a relationship literally coming to an end there. And it's handled with like the subtlety and grace that you don't normally see. Something I kind of want to
0: add to to your point about that scene in particular is just how quiet this movie feels.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: A common location for Yang is setting his films in Taipei. I know some people from what I was reading really constitute Taipei as a character here. I don't know that I would go that far with it, but for Taipei being densely populated, especially as Yang would have experienced it, I'm surprised how quiet this movie feels. And again, to go back to the the ending that we've discussed, there's this quiet reservedness through the entire film until we get to that point. You know, even how the film starts with a shootout or not necessarily a shootout, but somebody having been shot and then the police firing into what
1: we'd find out is the abandoned apartment. Outside of that, there's just a lot of quiet moments throughout. That's what's significant about that opening scene is that it is essentially a shootout, but you almost never see the shooting. It's sort of played just through sound. What's interesting is, you know, we get all these sort of, a sta- I was going to call them establishing shots, and I don't think that's an accurate description of what they are. We get all these shots of the city. He'll kind of hone in on little details like the water dripping from off a building and, and landing in a puddle. So it's exterior, but it is very quiet. It's almost like no sound until those gunshots go off. And then even when those gunshots go off, they feel so small. even within the context of what a gunshot means or represents, it's like it almost feels like it's not even dangerous. It's just part of everyday life. It sort of happens, sort of ends. I think the sound design is very intentional there, that it's almost silent, and then that silence is broken by these gunshots. The gunshots themselves don't even feel like they have any sort of weight or power. I would be remiss if we
0: didn't talk about... The way that this film, and I would say all of Yang's films essentially look, because visually, even with this one, there are breathtaking moments of cinematography and set design. And I think there's a very famous image that people generally like point to, if you just Google search this movie, it's that black and white photo of who you eventually find out is white chick uh, in the film. It's this this mosaic piece of white chick that, that the photographer captures actually very early on in the movie. and I, You know, it's kind of implied that this woman is kind of the reason that the photographer's girlfriend eventually has a conflict with him and results in their uh, separation. So I think that's like the famous or the most well-known visual from this film. Justin, I'm sure there's like millions of shots, but when you think of the visual style of the terrorizer, what jumps out at you?
1: It almost feels like the goal is to frame for the location, and then the actors sort of just happen to inhabit that location. There is not a strong emphasis on following characters, the cinematography is, I would say for the most part, very static, but he'll frame very wide static shots. And then the movement is all about just the how the characters move throughout that frame. And they'll enter and leave. He'll just hold on that, that frame of that empty location. And so more traditional film would either move the camera to follow, you know, tracking in front of or tracking behind a character to follow them as they go from one room to the next room or something like that. Or the other option is, you know, you cut ahead of the character. So the character is going from the living room to the bathroom, you'll cut to an angle into the bathroom before the character enters. So you're always staying with the character. And this feels like it's less about framing the characters and more about picking up the people just just happen to be there at the time. And in that way, it feels like a documentary. It almost feels like these things would be happening regardless of the camera. The camera just happens to be there to catch them. Because of this, some people say that it's like a play. And I don't necessarily agree with that because there is a lot of visual storytelling going on in those frames. I think what he is good at is choosing locations and dressing those locations and then, you know, staging characters in that frame that tell the story visually without a single word of dialogue. And obviously, that's the thing that stands out to me. And that's the thing I love about his work. Also, an emphasis on long takes can sort of be seen in all of new Taiwan cinema, something I personally really appreciate. Uh, do you have anything else you want to go into? I mean, I have certainly examples I could bring up. There's
0: one moment that you were talking about, and it was the the discussion between the Husband and wife, the writer and the lab technician, that separation discussion. By traditional standards, somebody would constitute as the master or the establishing shot of that discussion it takes place like out in the hallway, and the character really only takes up a, a small amount of the frame. And I think that through through all of Yang's filmography, one of the things that resonates to me is just how he he lets things linger he lets his shots linger and as you mentioned he holds on things and as i was watching this there were moments where i didn't want the take to end and i could have just sat there in that shot there's the the shot that we discussed looking into the, the kitchen, the mother of white chick putting on the record. And I guess that whole sequence, because she's silhouetted, she comes out of what I, I think was the bedroom and she puts the record on and she's kind of like hunched over looking down at it and the camera just holds there. There's countless moments like that. We just hold on an image and a shot, and it's conveying information, but I'm just very at peace in that moment of of the cinematography.
1: Fellow Taiwanese filmmaker Ho Shao Shen kind of mentioned that when this new wave of films was kind of taking off, that his goal was to sort of break tradition and film things, in a way that they're not normally filmed. So I think he went to the extreme and he, he was very sort of structured in his in his photography, in the sense that like he focused on wide, long takes. And I think Edward Yang finds like a middle ground. He does incorporate that into his work, but he'll also cut a scene up a little bit more and he'll cut to a medium shot. I think that can create some. Some really powerful moments. The one that does stick in my mind, I have to say, is the the sequence with the writer and her husband. And it kind of just starts right as she gets home. We have alternating uh, shot, reverse shot of her standing in the living room, and then him coming and seeing her, and they have a discussion. And then we cut to them like cleaning up the office, which is just one setup. And that moment she she tells him that she's leaving, he's like cut off by the frame because he's she's crouching on the floor, picking up books or looking through books, and he's picking up books and putting them on the shelf. So, she's sort of framed, crouched down. And as he stands up, he's cut in half. We see his lower half and he kind of just freezes when he gets this information. And then we cut to the kitchen, the scene in which you sort of described, and it starts on like a medium shot of him. And he's talking about how like he doesn't understand and, you know, like what did he do wrong in the hands of any other filmmaker or, you know, a more traditional filmmaker. There would be reverse angles of her, her reaction as he's talking, but we don't get her reaction. We just focus on him as he talks the tea kettle goes off and she stands up and she actually goes into by the stove in the kitchen. You know, this is like a master kind of thing, but the wall is kind of separating them. And just through the framing, you get that disconnect between the two of them through that framing. Honestly, the whole scene could have played out with that shot and that would have worked so well. But he manages to kind of make it even more powerful by focusing on these like medium shots. Then we cut to her already sitting down. That's an example of that, that ellipsis editing where we cut out things and it's like, it's 10 minutes later, maybe it's a half hour later. We don't even know.
0: And I don't think it matters.
1: Yeah, it doesn't matter. And she's now sitting down and now she's explaining her side of the story and she gets, you know, sort of all the attention and she gets that moment and we never get a reaction shot from him. What's significant about that that sort of type of filmmaking is it allows the actors to act. The actors aren't just like these moving props that have to hit a certain mark at a certain moment and then you yell cut and the camera moves to a slightly different angle and then you have to run those two lines again. you know you have to stand up on this line and uh, walk over here and hit this moment on this line. That's not the case here. You sit down and you you act. Or, you know, it's a wide shot and you're allowed to move in the frame. And if you go out of frame, that's okay. There's a couple things that I, I want to touch on that you brought up here. Kind of want to work backwards,
0: though. Both of my points go to a... Film school, this is what they teach you mentality. And with Yang Films, the camera is, is there, but there's all this space that exists outside of what the camera is able to capture. And I think to me, there's an element of powerfulness to that, where as an audience... This is what I'm seeing occur in front of me, and this is what is being shared with me. But this still exists when they're not in that shot or they're out of frame. And there's still like an additional geography that I'm maybe not seeing or not aware of. That's one of the uh traditional Western culture filmmaking elements that I think gets snuffed out, So the other thing that you touched on that I'd want to go back to is, you know, you you point out the moment that the lab technician kind of stands up as, you know, he's helping the writer, his wife, pick up the books and how he's cut off in that sequence. I just think about traditional Western filmmaking and there's an alternate reality where there's coverage of that and we have a different angle, like kind of looking up at him from her perspective and we're getting his reaction and and everything like that. I'm so happy that's not the reality we live in. That's a very non-traditional, that's not how, and I'm using air quotes, that's not how people shoot a movie, Feel to that sequence. And there's another one where White Chick is basically entertaining herself by making her prank phone calls. The camera's just focused on like the phone in her lap. It's not on her, it's not on her face or anything like that. The focus is the phone because in that moment, that's what's important. Not her, not her face, not her reaction or saying these words, but this device that is likely causing issues for people.
1: Right. And the fact that we can use the color of the phone to inform who the character is, just in terms of like what character we're looking at. I mean, if we never see the character's face, how do we know what character we're looking at? Well, the color of the phone. The use of the orange phone is enough to like tell us, well, this is this character, you know, him and other directors like Yang get accused of being theatrical or like, you know, putting on stage plays on film and I just don't ever buy it. He's using color and he's using all these things to visually tell us what is happening. I mean, the other moment of quote-unquote untraditional filmmaking that I that I kind of was like, yes, that speaks to me, is the moment sort of before this where Whitechick calls the writer character and she's in her office like moving her desk, I guess procrastinating, not writing. She's rearranging furniture and she gets the phone call. The camera's focused on her office. She walks out of the office, out of frame. She answers the phone. <phone <rings> He went Where yes. The camera doesn't pan with her. We don't cut to the other room. We just stay focused on that room as we hear the phone call off screen. But then, you know, there's a moment where the content of the phone call changes, the meaning of the phone call changes. And at that moment, the camera slowly pans to reframe her. First of all, I just love when characters walk out of frame. It's just one of those things that I I respond to. I think it personally gives this sense of life outside of the frame, which I think is important. But in that moment, the stillness of that camera just helps emphasize the camera move even more. The fact that we stayed locked down on something that seems sort of unimportant only makes us realize that camera move when it happens even more and puts more greater importance on that camera move. And in this case is important because that's the moment where white chick is informing her, I'm either the mistress of your husband or is saying something that implies it to her. So that's a huge turning point in the whole story that moment stands out for me as well, because, you know, you, you and I,
0: during just personal conversations and and as we talk about films that we're trying to make, one question that Justin frequently asks is, what are we trying to convey with this? Or what does this mean? I think the stillness until it's not still in that sequence is just it's telling you a lot. It's telling you I think everything you need to know that there's something else here, there's something else going on there. So I don't I don't really have much to add to this because I'm in agreement. Another thing that I noticed more so in this film than I think I've ever noticed with any other Yang film is he shoots a lot of the characters basically being veiled, being behind like curtains or, you know, something of that nature. And, and it, I think it happens quite frequently in this film. I, I think at some point, almost every single of our four primary characters are shot behind some sort of veil or window or curtain. I don't know. Is that something that stood out to you at all?
1: Yeah, it did. What do you think the meaning of that is? Well, I think that there's a a
0: meaning to it that they're all... I'm sure that there's more to it and I'm I'm probably not going to bring anything super insightful to it but I think that it's communicating that there's another layer to them in that moment. The one that really stands out to me is the photographer and if I'm not mistaken the moment that he's behind the like the billowing curtain is basically when he's kind of having the argument with his girlfriend my assumption based off of what the film is conveying is she's upset about him having pictures of white chick in that moment it's kind of lit almost sort of angelic it's a little bit brighter than he's lit anywhere else it's two meanings one i think it's really that there's something that he's been hiding And I think that's very much on the surface, but I think that there's also like a realization to him that maybe what's out there is something else or somewhere else.
1: I also can't help but kind of go back to this idea that, you know, all the characters are sort of just meandering or stumbling through this world without purpose or without self-awareness of who they are as people and... and what's important to them, these identity issues. And it just being another thing in which there's this, you know, sort of surface layer, this mask or whatever, or this appearance of what someone is and then, you know, sort of who the person actually is. But in this case, you know, the character doesn't necessarily know who they actually are. There is this sort of confusion. But I think this also sort of makes its way into other sort of framing choices as well. I, particularly with the writer and her husband, there's a lot of him going to the bathroom. The camera's set up outside the bathroom and shooting through the doorway to him, but he's always sort of cut off. He's either at the sink washing his hands, which he does a lot in the film. We see the back of him, but his face is sort of hidden by the doorway. I feel like that's just a similar thing where it's just like not only is there this sense of isolation, but also something getting in the way of who this person truly is. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And and it's interesting to me that in that context, there's so few moments where you can really point to characters seeing or experiencing each other on unblocked you know there's like nothing in between them or there's nothing even within the frame to kind of block them from each other and i think that ties into also how many just singles there are because i i think about the moment that the writer wife goes to the apartment that the photographer is in. we never see them together in that moment, we just get a single of each. I think that it, it just helps create more of like a disconnect between these characters. Whether that was the intent or not, you know, you can argue that, but it serves the story and it serves the film because of
1: that. So there's the scene where the writer and the editor, they sleep together and we get this represented by them in bed together. And that's shot as a two-shot, you know, one setup, one take, extended, and they discuss various things. I would say probably one of the most honest conversations that two characters have in the film. You disagree if with that? I
0: could, if, no, no, no. No, if I could jump in, though, I think it's one of the most honest. But at the same time, I feel like there's almost this level of disinterest from both of them in that moment. I don't feel like either of them are overly interested in that conversation, at least the way that it plays. If It feels kind of mundane within the context of the film. It's the fact that there is so much openness and honesty in that moment. And it's also treated with... Disinterest.
1: Yeah, I mean, by contrast, it, it does feel like even with that element you described, which I, I agree is there, it does feel like the most honest conversation and a moment in which two characters are truly connecting. But my point being is, you know, that's photographed in a two shot. And then we cut to her standing in front of the window and he's in the bathroom. And then we cut to their conversation after that. And that is photographed through alternating singles. And it's the moment where she says, you know, forget about me. You need to find someone else for this job. And also she's potentially implying that like, I can't do this. This was a mistake. And so we go from this moment where they're theoretically connecting with each other, photographed in a two shot. And then that moment where that connection is being sabotaged or that connection is is no longer there. And then they're photographed through these alternating singles. I think that's an example that goes back to your earlier point.
0: I think overall, it's a film just where, where characters really don't share a lot of space together in general within the context of the cinematography.
1: Well, I think there is a loneliness and an isolation, even with people you you would think would be sort of close it, you know, with your husband or your wife you're alone in your apartment and, you know, we frame it wide. So you're, you you seem small in this location or the location seems very empty. And then when you go out in the streets, Yang photographs large crowds of people in which the camera is almost sort of like searching for our character within this large group of people and could be easily missed. The obvious examples are like when white chick is sort of out on the street and she's trying to She's hustling. Yeah. Yeah. You're surrounded by people, but like, you know, no one's really connecting and there. You sense that loneliness even when you're with people or you go home and you're all alone or can't really connect with the person you're living with. It's just all about this sort of loneliness and isolation that I think Yang is implying is everywhere. So I know we've spent a a fair amount of time talking about the visual style, the
0: cinematography of the Terrorizer. I do just want to highlight just a couple quick moments, and I'm just going to kind of go a little bit rapid fire on them. It's such a a fleeting moment, but I absolutely adored the way that it was shot, the production design behind it. And I'm sure, Justin, it's probably going to make, you know, you roll your eyes. When we're at the photographer's apartment, that was kind of shot up at the beginning. I forget if it's before White Chick had left or after, but before I think it's like truly revealed. The wind rustling all the pictures, just the way that the photographer's pictures are kind of used to communicate information. The picture with the his girlfriend and how it was like distorted and kind of separated right before what we're led to believe is a suicide attempt. The way that Yang uses that to communicate information, I, I think is just tremendous. I'm always a big sucker for tremendous use of color. And there's a sequence that's just like really bathed in red, and I have no other context behind it. It's just one of those moments where it just looks absolutely gorgeous. But then kind of going back to the still photography element of how it's shot and how scenes are just kind of left to play out in this wide, I want to say it probably is the last moment the lab technician husband and the writer wife have together as you know, it follows the breakup discussion that takes place in the kitchen. It's the shot in the bedroom and the camera is fixed and it's basically her like trying to get the suitcase closed and she's struggling with it. And again, fixed camera. The husband is watching as this is occurring and even though in that moment he would be in pain and and he would be struggling with it, there's this moment of kindness where he goes and helps her close it. I think about breaks in relationships, separations, divorce, things like that. That's not an idea or a thought that I generally have. I never envision somebody offering that kindness because we get so consumed in our own hurt or pain and the reaction generally isn't what is played out here. So you mentioned ellipses editing. You you kind of explained what that was, but could you kind of highlight that again
1: for us? You see it in all movies. The idea is that you cut out the sections that are not important to the story you're telling. So the obvious example is someone is driving to a location. You may show that character get in the car. You may see the car pull away. And then you usually cut to you know, exterior of the location and the car pulls into the parking lot or whatever and parks you cut out the portion in which they're actually driving to the location, because it's not important. You can fill that part in, in your mind. We all know what happens in that portion. So, you cut that out. And that's an example of ellipsis editing. But it's used in an interesting way in this film, because he almost cuts to things that would normally be considered things that are cut-worthy. You know, someone sitting still at a table or something like that, something that would normally probably be cut, he chooses to cut what happens before it and actually show the thing that would normally be cut out. It gives this impression that the scene is over and then, oh, the scene's not actually over. Or it gives this impression that it's the same scene and then it's a different scene. The scenes kind of like melt into each other and create this sort of disorienting effect where you don't really know, is this the same moment? Is this 10 minutes Is this an hour? How much has been cut out? I have a few examples. I think an interesting one is the lab technician is talking to the friend in the office and it's this area where it's just the two of them. And he expresses this idea that, you know, someone is spreading this rumor about him and, you know, he's not going to, you know, take it and he, he leaves. So he walks out of frame and then In that same shot, we have the lab technician we've been following sort of turn his head to look in the direction of this character, and then we cut to essentially a POV of this character, and the character's already already halfway down the hallway. It's a simple head turn, and then a cut. We're talking about like, you know, a second, and somehow he's made it all the way down the hallway. It's just an interesting choice. He's playing with time. I'm going to name another example. So there's a moment where the writer gets the call and then she calls the editor friend. And so we cut to the phone ringing. He answers the phone. And then we immediately cut to him in the car, parked, empty seat next to him. And then we cut to her walking up the steps to this place that white chick told her to go. That's one of those things where it's like he'd easily be kind of confusing. Or if you're not paying attention... You could miss it, or you could even say, like, why is it important at all? Theoretically, she calls him for a ride, but we never even see them in the car together.
0: But there's enough implied to connect A to B to C.
1: Absolutely. And that's just another example of, like, cutting out things that that aren't important to the story being told or are cut that way to create a certain effect. The whole film is structured this way. Oh, yeah. We get a conversation between the writer and her husband, and then we cut to them sitting at a table discussing the fact that their relationship is essentially over. It feels like it's a whole nother scene. It feels like it could be the next day. It doesn't really matter, but it does feel like there's things that are missing.
0: Edward Ying had his first attempt with the creative arts was you know, manga, and he was very interested in Japanese manga, drawing his own. I think that there's a lot of moments within the film that have this editing style. I'm kind of wondering, did Yang bring some of that manga comic book idea and approach to this film where these are my shots, what's happening from panel to panel maybe doesn't matter? In the moment, it feels kind of jarring, but it's when uh, one of the first times we see white chick trying to exploit a man and steal money from him in a hotel, this Mark comes out of the bathroom as she's kind of going through his wallet and basically robbing him. He's wrapping his hand with a belt and he kind of goes to this corner. And quicker than it seems like it should possibly occur or happen, she is On top of him stabbing him, and based off of the geography of the hotel room and things that are already established, it makes no sense that she would be able to get to him in that quick of time.
1: Well, also added the fact that if you watch his facial expression, there's this genuine shock from him. He had no idea that this was coming, which doesn't necessarily make sense within the blocking of the scene, although I do think it actually kind of works.
0: I think it works, but I do think that it's it's kind of a jarring moment, And not jarring to the point where I'm like taken out of it or I I dislike it to any degree or anything like that. But I just feel like moments like that are sprinkled throughout the film. I kind of wonder if maybe this film was shot and it was being cut based off of the way that Yang saw comics and manga and, well, whatever happens from panel to panel, it's less important how we got
1: to that point next shot i'll bring up one other thing that kind of supports what you just said is the example i'm thinking of is the scene we already talked about in which the writer and the editor after having slept with each other have that conversation and she says you know like find someone else for the job and we cut to like her standing still in a single and then we cut to him standing very still in a single and that, in a way, feels a little bit jarring too. Because, I mean, traditionally, you would get your entrances and your exits. You would, you would photograph the character walking into frame. And then you'd photograph the character exiting frame. Anytime you have one of those sort of standing setups. Because otherwise, when you cut to them just standing there, it can sometimes create this impression that they just teleported to a new location out of nowhere. And he does that. And, and I can't say that that's on accident. I mean, this is sort of just the structure of the movie. And I think the way you described it could possibly be sort of the inspiration or the starting place for this type of, of editing and blocking.
0: Of the films I've watched of his, and, and admittedly, I mean, it could also be fair to say that maybe we're expanding upon something that really isn't there, and it is just a new young director trying to find what works, because again, this was a very early film for Yang. To the best of my knowledge, none of his other films exhibit this behavior, so it does feel like a product of and for this film.
1: It does. And I I do think there is a little bit of like him playing or experimenting with narrative. And I think these techniques support that.
0: I don't mean to derail us too much off of editing, but you did just hit on something that as I was watching this, I could see him laying the groundwork for his later films and what he would accomplish with Brighter Summer Day and Yi There are many moments within this film that I'm like, I understand how he got to where he did. And while I I don't mean to discredit the terrorizer at all, I do feel like this is a stepping stone to something greater. Other thoughts about editing?
1: I'll just say one more thing. This kind of ties back to my me saying like he's using visual storytelling techniques. And this is something so far I've mentioned I think every episode is the idea of scene-to-scene editing. There's the moment where the photographer goes to the the apartment that had the shootout. It's now abandoned. And essentially the landlord is looking for someone to rent it to. And he asks him, Are you looking for a place to stay. And he's, you know, he says no. But then we immediately cut to his apartment that he's sharing with his girlfriend. And we get the shot of the, like the balcony and the billowing curtains. And obviously we can connect those images to that location. So visually we know exactly where we are. And then, you know, the girlfriend enters and essentially a POV, she sees the empty workbench that had all of his photography equipment that is now empty And we instantly know he just picked up and left. And now that scene goes on and we get a note. We don't know what it says, but it also doesn't matter because the fact that we cut to, hey, do you want an apartment to his stuff gone? So that's the scene to scene editing, but also the visual elements saying, noticing the stuff is gone tells us he, he has left and we know exactly where he went because they butted those scenes up together that he went to that place. So, that's an example of the power of scene-to-scene editing in the sense that you draw connections immediately. Now, if that scene was two scenes, three scenes later, that connection, you still probably can draw that connection, but that connection isn't as strong. We're being told this strictly through visual information. There's no need for dialogue. We don't need to know what the note says. We already know what's happening.
0: I would take it back to even earlier in the film and just how we get the parallel between the photographer and his girlfriend's apartment and just suppose that with the writer and the lab technician husband, and just how those scenes are kind of paired together. And it's it's like, okay, we're getting the fact that there are parallels and there are similarities here with the way that those two are kind of parsed together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's probably 20 other examples, but that's the one I, for some reason, just stood out to me. If you don't have anything else to add to the editing discussion, we can move on.
0: We touched on sound a little bit um, because, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, the the quietness, much less frequently in this film than most other Yang films, and especially A Brighter Summer Day, which is very music-driven. There's only one moment of Western music, and it's the smoke gets in your eyes uh, sequence. <laughs> It's always interesting to me because clearly I'll call it Western entertainment and Western art had an impact on Yang, not just because he he lived in the U.S., but also what was being exported as far as art goes to, to China. I think it's kind of important to note that even though there's not a ton of that Western musical influence here,
1: there is still that moment, which I think
0: becomes synonymous with an Edward Yang
1: film. I think if you ask anybody what they remember from this film, that whole sequence is probably at the top of the list. Seems to be a popular talking point about this film. And I think it does certainly demonstrate the power of music plus image. The second half of that sequence in which there's the fight between the the photographer and his girlfriend. Being paired with that music makes that scene more interesting, maybe even more impactful. I don't know. What do you think?
0: I agree with that. There's a moment there where it felt like, okay, now Yang truly understands how to use a song with a sequence of a film.
1: I think American film relies heavily on music and heavily on musical score to make a scene work to tell the audience the mood or the feeling or, you know, what to feel. And a film like this completely resists that. I mean, we talked about it being very a very quiet film.
0: I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying this is a film that I really liked. I really feel like I need to do a revisit because from my account, The Terrorizer is not the best Yang film, but I also don't think it needs to be because there's something inherently perfect about it. I guess there's just a couple things, you know, before we wrap up here. Justin, who is, based off of your definition, the
1: terrorizers in this film? Well, we have White Chick. We have the lab technician. I could stop there because that's two. Gets me to terrorizers. So you
0: made it to plural. Okay.
1: <laughs> there is a, a theme of all the characters making decisions that are probably not the best decisions that ultimately will affect other people's lives. And some are worse than others, obviously. But I do think that part of the film is sort of how the things you do will kind of trickle down and affect other people in ways you don't expect in that way everybody is a terrorizer. But again, I mean, I th- I think we're probably talking about a title that is different because of issues with translation. Oh, you're taking all the fun out of it now. Maybe okay, go <laughs> ahead. I'm gonna make a guess here, and you think the sole terrorizer is White Chick. Incorrect. Okay.
0: I think that's the superficial answer, and I think that's the easy answer. I actually think that the wife slash writer is the soul terrorizer, and here's why. I believe that in the construct of the film, all of these characters are actually her creations in the story that she is telling and that she is working through, and in turn, she is putting them through all of these ordeals. So, And I know the question will be, well, but she's in this story. But I think that's just her construct of her in the book that she's writing and the story that she's telling. One of the reasons why I go here is A repeated line of dialogue surrounds basically fiction is fiction don't take it seriously the separation of fiction from reality and it's not just the author who highlights this it's highlighted by others in the film and to me that leads me to believe i don't know that these characters are more than just characters of the author
1: I think there's probably a lot of things we could talk about in terms of takeaways and and things we obviously love and respect about this film and Edward Yang in general. Is there anything you want to add in terms of takeaways or takeaways as a filmmaker?
0: I think my big takeaway is just patience and not being afraid to be unconventional with how something's shot and constructing your, your cinematography in a way that doesn't meet what is traditional. You know, regardless of how you view terrorizers or for me, the terrorizer. At its core, regardless of what you believe, the fact is it's a lot about burying tradition or conventional thinking in conventional ways. So regardless of where you and I disagree, I think we could probably agree that the message and the theme of the film is important and something that filmmakers could actually learn from. And maybe, Buck, what is the norm or expected?
1: I agree with that. I don't really think I have anything to add. Would you recommend The Terrorizers? I would obviously recommend it to anyone who's interested in filmmaking. Although this would not be the first Yang film I would recommend, I do think this is maybe, from my perspective at this point in time, not in his top three films. So I'd maybe recommend other films first, if you haven't seen any yang films if you if you have seen some and this is one you've been avoiding or just haven't seen i would obviously say well watch it even though we've critiqued certain aspects of the film i i think it is a really good film and there's moments in it that are are truly amazing if you're someone who is just kind of getting into cinema from Taiwan, and you've never seen anything like this, I would say just try to be patient with it. And if you just give it time, I think it's worth it. I think it'll pay off. Would you recommend it, Joe?
0: I'm a big fan of Yang. And it's hard for me to be... Maybe a little unbiased of the films of his that I've seen. I actually probably would rate this one a little bit higher than you, although I don't think it's quite as good as some of his other work. So, so I do feel like I'm maybe I'm being a little contrarian to you right now. I do strongly, strongly recommend The Terrorizer. And I would actually go out on a limb and say, I think this might be the most. Accessible to Western audiences, maybe the second most. I don't think it's his best film, and I wouldn't even, I I would maybe put it in his top three. But when I say accessible, I mean it more so from the runtime than anything. Um, I think it's probably a challenge for people to sit down for a three or four hour film just based off of today's audiences and attention spans. I think that there's something almost montage-y about how this film is constructed that maybe helps people through that. I would also probably suggest that you watch this one um, a little bit earlier because I can't help but feel I would probably have a little bit more appreciation for it If I had seen this before some of his later work, just to kind of understand that, hey, this is where he started versus where he ended up with Yi Yi.
1: I do wonder if it would maybe have an opposite effect, though. You know, if you hadn't seen Yi Yi as an example Mm -hmm. and you didn't respect him as that filmmaker, would you maybe have dismissed this not knowing what he would later go on to do?
0: And I think that's an important caveat. I don't feel like after watching this, you should stop with Yang if you have never had any exposure to him. I think that the most logical follow-up to this one would be Taipei Story or start with Taipei Story and then go to the Terrorizer and then go to a Yi Yi or Brighter Summer Day, whichever you prefer. But I think that this one, Taipei Story, they're very close to me. I think Taipei's story just tells maybe a little bit more of a easier-to-connect-with story, like, you know, maybe a little bit more character to it, and it's probably a little bit easier to follow. It's more conventional in structure. But I, I think that it should be maybe an earlier viewing than a later one, at least just based off of my
1: experience and how I felt. Okay. I would just recommend the films that I think are maybe slightly better films first, but I don't know that might not that might not work for everyone. there is the length concern obviously
0: So tell us about next time on scene by scene. If there is a next time,
1: oh well. So, next time, um, we'll be talking about Tai Ming Liang's Rebel of the Neon God from 1992, a film that I think is heavily influenced by terrorizers. Tai's early filmography is sort of heavily influenced by terrorizers, similar structure, a lot of similar themes. Like I said, I think Yang is one of the great filmmakers. In my mind, there's no doubt about it. But the way you feel about Yang is probably the way I feel about timing Liang. There's just something about his work that just connects to me a little bit more. And it's not necessarily about quality of filmmaking, but more about the characters and the stories. I chose this film uh, because I'm under the impression you have sort of no knowledge of Tai's work is that correct I mean it's also worth noting that another film that's part of what we've been referring to as the Taiwanese new wave although he's sometimes considered like second wave depending on the source
0: as I'm kind of going through his filmography it's it's fair to say this is a significant blind spot for me
1: I don't know how you feel about it but I look forward to it yeah
0: if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Rate and review on
1: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on Letterboxd for some reason, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Johnson. And Joe can be found at letterbox.com slash uh, jr 83. So join us next time for that discussion of Tai Ming Liang's Rebels of the Neon God. Thanks for listening to the Scene by Scene podcast. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over.
0: Your movie was over, that's what you said! There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh?
1: So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm uh, an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie.
0: Sorry, can we oh. cut? Still rolling. You know what? Oh. No, not still so rolling. Cut, 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 cut! Hey, cut. Yeah, great work, everybody. That's a wrap.